0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What is Money show. I am thrilled today to be sitting down with my friend, codenamed Lester. (laughs) I'll give you a little bit of backstory on this. So Lester and I actually met at a Bitcoin dinner in Los Angeles. This was 2018, 19? think so yeah um so we were i think we had connected through nick batia's work Um,
1: yeah and we randomly sat next to each other
0: um, yep yep and then we kind of connected some dots realized we knew each other on twitter had a very interesting conversation that night um going deep into the annals of monetary history And where we thought the world economy was headed. And long story short, you and I kept in touch. Um, We traded notes on a lot of these topics for several months thereafter. And then finally, you recommended, and I'll let you tell the story about how you discovered this book, but you recommended this book to me, written by Melchior Pagli, titled The Twilight of Gold. And I think this book, is one of the most excellent texts I've read on the intricacies, importance, and ultimate downfall of the gold standard. Um, so, Lester,
1: this has been a long time coming, but welcome to the yeah. show. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, I, uh, well, um, I didn't tell you this in the pre-show banter but i want to share a what is money i know it's not like necessarily a device you use at the beginning of every show but Mm. i do have a passage and a take on what is money that like has really sticks with me that i want to share please and it's from um the dying of money i'm not going to read the whole thing out loud but um he says that essentially he says that money is the it's the counterweight to all things of value. And that in that money is actually the opposite of value. Money has no value. It's an, it, I I like the idea that it's an anti-value, but it is merely a reflection of the economy that the money serves. Mm. And so any currency is essentially, it's backed by the world's economy. That's what backs all money is the real A number of saleable values, products and services in the economy. And that doesn't matter whether money is gold or paper or computer credits or Bitcoin. Money is the most valueless thing. Um, Eric Vosco makes the point that like the concept of store of value is not an inherent property of anything, anything whatsoever. When he made that point, I was like, oh, God. I hadn't thought about it that way. You kind of think, well, gold has, gold has store of value properties. No, no, nothing has store of value properties. Regardless, we will, now that we have money as a civilization, we will always have money. I'm not saying that money is pointless or that money is an illusion. But in the way that we use it, it has almost an anti-value. It's just, it's, it's just a share in the economy that the money serves. And then when you dilute the money, you dilute all the shares. Mm-hmm. I just like thinking about it that way.
0: No, it's, it's a great, unique way to look at it. Um, especially throwing that first function on its head in a way, right? It's like to, to store value... It's not that. It's a reflection of the actual valuable goods and services in an economy. This yeah. gets back to a point that Jeff Snyder shared on this show, which is that he, he was advocating that money is not wealth. right? Wealth is the productive factors in an economy. And that money is effectively a call option on those productive factors. Um, It's also been said that you know, money is the most beautiful or useful lie ever told, <laughs> something like that. Um, and this, you know, it kind of begs the question, what is value? And I actually yeah. think that's, that's a deeper philosophical question. Um, also with, you know, very significant economic implications uh, that relate to kind of the marginal, the, the revolution of marginalism, in the 1800s, um, but I think to define it simply is like value. Ultimately, is just relevance, right? We're all we all have aims and purposes we're trying to achieve, and whatever tools or obstacles are relevant to that goal or aim are either valuable or or value destructive. In the case of obstacles or impediments, so. It's very interesting, um, and I appreciate that you brought up the the what is money deep dive right at the top of the show. That's, <laughs> that's the namesake here,
1: yeah. I mean, I've had deep and abiding questions about the nature of money since I was really young that never got answered until I found bitcoin i mean i I remember in college a friend of mine was in business school. He's older than me. And I was like, can you tell me why growth is like a thing in business? Like, why is growth so important? Like, is there, is there a business model without growth? And he couldn't answer the question. Um, he was more learning about how to maximize growth. And I, and, and I didn't like, I just never, my parents had, my parents had a mortgage on their house in the eighties. And I grew up in a house that was way over leveraged. And my parents were probably too transparent with me. They sat me down. I sat them down and I was like, what is the deal? You guys like, why, why are you so stressed? And they're like, well, here's our, here's our mortgage payment. It's um, 15%. And I was like, I did the calculation. I'm like, wait, so our house we bought was 375,000. And by the time you pay the bank back in 30 years, you'll have paid them almost a million dollars. That makes no sense. And they were like, they, they had no answer. Like they didn't think about it. I grew up loathing mortgages because I had a bad experience as a kid with it. But like, it really led me to like, I couldn't, I couldn't conceptualize where does money come from? I remember asking my dad, like, how does new money get introduced into the economy? And it wasn't until so many years later, through, through seeing the world through the lens of Bitcoin, that like suddenly all these things made sense. And just bring it back to what you just said about value. Like when I started reading, I, I assigned myself over the pandemic to read uh, *Man, Economy, and State*. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, we have we have two young kids, and like we were doing full time parenting. I tried to do five pages a day. I didn't even get there. In mm-hmm. the last couple of years, I've got through six hundred pages. And then, you know, I've taken a lot of bunch of breaks, but I will say that like their frame of reference for all value is subjective and intersubjective and that you can't even assign any cardinal values to a value, but everything is valued relative to something else and it's dynamic and it changes. And when I read that, I was like, it makes so much sense to me. It was like, it was like someone had peeled back the fabric of the universe and exposed the truth. And I was like, thank you. Thank you.
0: Yes. <laughs> no, it's great. Great way to, to look at it. Um, a couple of points there I think are interesting. You know, one, I'll, I'll circle back to something you said towards the end of the definition of what is money. And that, so that a unit of money is like a share in the economy it serves. And diluting the money dilutes all shares. I think this is such a useful framing because, especially for entrepreneurs that have ever dealt with a cap table, mm-hmm. um, or or you know, distributed equity interest of any kind, you would clearly never give one shareholder class the asymmetric privilege to issue themselves new shares. Mm-hmm and externalize that dilution onto you know other shareholder classes, obviously, right? Because the shareholder class with that privilege would issue shares to themselves until they diluted the other classes to zero, effectively. It's um, very obvious that that would not work in practice. Yet, that is exactly what a fiat currency system is, right? One group gets to issue themselves new shares and dilute the other group. Um, And you you mentioned unconstrained growth in business. Mm -hmm. And I think this gets to a deeper point in the book is that gold was that check on government growth, right? Governments are always just like any other business. They're trying to increase revenues. They're trying to grow. Revenues for government are... Taxation, right? These, these, core, you know, as Rothbard says, the one unique thing about government is that they do not derive the revenues from mutual voluntary exchange. They derive them from coercion. Um, these are extractive payments, this is tribute. So, in order for a government to grow, it necessarily has to become more coercive over time. But gold was like a check on that, right? If the government became too coercive or too irresponsible with monetary policy, gold would flow out of their country. So it applied this like disciplinary force. Um, And I think that is really the core reason (laughs) governments have moved against gold or to try and throw off the yoke of gold, if you will. So... I just wanted to bring that up because i it, i I've kind of condensed that into gold was the analog governor of government, and I think this it's kind of a useful framing for what Bitcoin could become. It's like something like an actual law to which all governments are beholden and that none can break you know gold kind of approximately served this purpose, but bitcoin it seems um could serve it much more adequately.
1: This is I'm going to like jump ahead a little bit in the outline I had for what I want to talk about and why I wanted like why I want to read this book and why I loved it. Um I to me it's it became like a foregone conclusion that Bitcoin will be the center of value in the world. Like that's just the world that I live in. Every sat that I buy I see every value that it has and every value that it's going to have. And I live entirely, I don't know how long it'll take us to get there. But that's like, I mean, a caveat to everything I'm saying. That is what I've thought. I sort of jumped. I was like, I'm not even having the debate about, about in my mind, I'm like past that point. So I just want to figure out, well, what's the world going to look like when that happens, because there's like just a bunch of questions I have. How will corporations do their accounting when the, the, the center unit is increasing in value? How will you gauge growth? How will you gauge whether you've had growth? Um, you had a good, you know, you and I had a phone call maybe about a year ago, and we talked about Bitcoin becoming, this is your words, a no counterparty index fund on the value of everything. And I've repeated that a bunch. Like this basic cycle is Bitcoin absorbs all of the available monetary premium in the world. Not all of the monetary premium because people will still want houses. People will still want art. People will still want other things. But let's say it absorbs the share that it's going to absorb. Some of art, some of the stock market. In my mind, most of the bond market. Some of real estate, some of everything. And once it gets to that point, Then, as society gets wealthier in real terms, when the number of real saleable values, computers, cars, services, as the number of real saleable values grows, then the per share purchasing power of each Bitcoin grows as well. If society grows by gets richer in real terms, not in money terms. If society gets richer in money terms by 3%, 5%, and the purchasing power of Bitcoin goes up by 5%. In my mind, this will attract more buyers of Bitcoin to the extent that they will deprive the investment process of the capital it needs to become more efficient. That will actually regulate itself. The more money that flows disproportionately into Bitcoin and doesn't flow into the capital structure of making the world wealthier, essentially retards the the productivity process such that Bitcoin will actually start to become less valuable Mm -hmm. because capital breaks down, requires investment, depreciates. And if we're not investing in that in real terms, then society gets poorer. So as society gets poorer, suddenly the opportunity set isn't in buying Bitcoin, it's in divesting yourself of Bitcoin to become more efficient. Society starts to get wealthier, those those opportunities get all arbitraged away. And then once again, as Bitcoin's becoming more valuable because society is getting wealthier, mm-hmm. then money flows back into Bitcoin. And that's sort of, now you're, mm-hmm. now you're in equilibrium. But I've assumed that we're going to get to that point. And so I wanted to figure out what does that world look like? And to like, the, cl- the closest I can come is the gold standard. Reading this book gave me total boner for the gold standard. I never thought I would think it was as cool as I do or that I would see studying the gold standard as a perfect prism through which I could look to the future to see both the pitfalls but the values. The 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 values of it that were cool.
0: Yeah, I think you know we're describing this journey into the bitcoin rabbit hole actually because it's so interesting that we've we find this new technology everyone it's like the six blind guys encountering the elephant everyone's describing it differently yeah. trying to get our head around it um but to really fathom its profundity you end up deep in the past looking at you know again these historical analogies Gold, you know, digital gold is one of the most um, prominent analogies for Bitcoin. Everyone understands gold is valuable. Like it's almost just, you know, we even have these phrases in our language of, "Oh, that restaurant is a gold mine," or "It's as good as gold," um, or "Worth his weight in gold." All these things, but so few of us, we take that at face value almost. Without understanding the why, right? Why was gold so important? Why was it um, so valuable, frankly? And that's the rabbit hole right? It's like you're looking forward into this new technology, but somehow you end up deep in the past in these first principles of money and gold. <laughs> and it is uh, it's just a fascinating journey. You know VJ tweeted this out the other day too. It's like, studying Bitcoin made me more deeply aware of the true economics underpinning gold. So, and, and in this journey, I, you know, I've read a lot of books about this. I think this book in particular has just done the best job of touching all of the aspects of its importance. Um, so where, where should we go
1: from here? Okay, um, let me do this. Yeah, I, I would yeah. say actually, I wanted I want to say a little bit about the book. I want to give a framework for reading the book, but I want to just jump into a passage from the book. Let's just I want to read this I want to read this one passage from the book just to set it up. Please. This is from page 6. The international gold standard was thus historically one of the most important adjuncts to the opening of the world to settlement and development, and, whatever may be said by those who never look to the woods because of the trees, this creation of a world economy constituted one of the great and beneficial turning points in the history of mankind. The meaning of the gold standard, with its unrestrained and uncontrolled private ownership of gold, cannot be appreciated in isolation from the institutional and psychological background that characterized the civilized world in the decades before 1914. The outstanding feature of that period was the unity of the economic world as has not been achieved at any other time. There was a freedom of travel without passports, freedom of migration, and freedom from exchange control, and other monetary restrictions. Citizenship was freely granted to immigrants. Capital would move unsupervised in any direction, and these movements could take any form. International trade had to overcome tariffs, but they were exceedingly low. There were hardly any quantitative restrictions on international trade, quotas, import prohibitions, etc. It was a world of which recently many would have been inclined to assert that it could not be created because it would never work. It was a world of relatively low nominal wages and prices and almost nominal taxes, a world in which virtual freedom of enterprise, workable competition, highly flexible wage price structures prevailed, one in which private property and contractual rights were enforced, defaulting governments had to face boycott, or worse. It was a world of balanced budgets wherein public debts had to be amortized as a matter of course, just as private ones had to be repaid and fiat money was anathema. Essential public expenditures, investments aka, were financed by the sale of long-term bonds, not by debt monetization. And above all, it was an industrial world of steady real growth at an average annual rate of about 3% during the six decades before 1914 with rising living standards for the masses and with security provided by the protection of savings. Um, don't know if you could tell from my voice, almost started crying through part of it. <laughs> it, it, it touches me that that the portrait he's painting you can't read that and think to yourself like what what have i why have i not been taught that the gold standard did this i find that the concept of that world as we go farther and farther away from it i'm like i long for that maybe what he's saying is maybe he's painting too rosy of a picture but that is one of the most moving passages I've ever read in economics.
0: Yeah, it's truly beautiful. And I would say that this is perhaps the closest the world has ever been to the pure laissez fair free market economy, right? Where again, low predictable nominal taxes, fair and fixed rules, property rights, contract law, uh, governments are held accountable right yeah yeah uh, crazy as that may sound today <laughs> and it just makes it, it's it's obvious right like we we we're human beings we have to compete and cooperate at scale right we have to play games with one another effectively to create all this wealth in the world and through the marketplace through the mechanism of the marketplace we know that to play a game fairly successfully and sustainably, you need rules that are clearly defined, right? And that everyone can play by the rules, so to speak. When you introduce a a mechanism or or give a a certain group the ability to bend or twist those rules such that they're effectively playing by a different set of rules, then it, it creates this bifurcation in society. And Um, this is what the Austrians have been talking about forever, right? It's like, just let freedom do its thing. People will coalesce around the rule sets that make the most sense. You don't really need to impose hardly anything, right? There needs to be very minimal coercion or compulsion at all, only really in response to coercion or compulsion. If someone comes and steals your property or violates a contract, then you would have some recourse against them. Um, but you don't we don't need you know we we've, we've almost altered our mindset or mentality about how order works like today we think we need some legislation from on high to dictate and govern our behavior which is contradictory to the principle of freedom that this this golden era embodied hey everybody or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider NIDIG your single source solution for everything Bitcoin.
1: There is a lot of lip service given to freedom in our popular culture right now, Mm. but that freedom comes in the form of exerting dominion over someone else's freedom. And so like we're adding this like extensive list of rules of like, Restrictions on how we live, in order to give people freedom, and it's not even ironically done. And then, those new restrictions create unfair restrictions. So then you pass some anti-restriction restrictions, (laughs) (laughs) and then like now all of our freedom is like this legis. All of our freedoms have to be legislated, which is a contradiction. Exactly. Laws legislating freedom create an arms race of restrictions and then counter restrictions. That's our reality. That's where we are. But the freedom of the gold standard, like as I perceive it now, was built on one single restriction, which was a restriction from nature. And it was a strict restriction that no one had discretion to change. And because there was like a fundamental boundary, we could be creative. Because there were limits.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it, universal rules or a universal rule, a golden rule, if you will. Yes, <laughs> um, like gravity or thermodynamics or natural law. You know, something that is universally applicable within the bounds of which since the rules are not are not mutable or immutable effectively fair play is incentivized because if you can't bend the rules or break the rules or change the rules well then the optimal wealth acquisition strategy would be to play by the rules and within the constraints of a gold standard that is long term productive trading relationships right this is again laissez faire capitalism um but the dominant institution in the world governments right the monopoly on violence this was a restriction ultimately a restriction to their growth which i would argue is the story right it's like the the this particular industry was restrained by gold and that explains a lot of the 20th century development of central banking, the disparagement of gold. Um, You know, another great book, which I know we're not talking about today, is The The Gold Wars by Ferdinand Lips that goes into detail about how governments coordinated their efforts to throw off the quote-unquote barbarous relic that was gold.
1: It's kind of like one of the accepted pieces of wisdom from that is like the 20th century went awry because the gold standard failed. Yeah, And like I, why? I don't know. I don't, I don't, the, 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 the point of this book is that that's not true. Mm-hmm. And just like, just to talk about who this guy is who wrote the book, um, it wasn't even until I was going through the book to the second time. I was like, <laughs> I read the book, I loved it. And then I was like, wait, who wrote this book? So like, here's just a little bit of background about the author. um. He was uh, born in Budapest in 1892, and then he got his doctorate in economics in in Munich in in 1915. So he was in Germany right at the outbreak of World War One, and then he worked at a bunch of different um, universities in Germany during the hyperinflation. So, like, he was there firsthand for the hyperinflation, and then in 28 at the dawn of the depression he was the chief economist for deutsche bank so this is all and then he 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 went to the us when hitler came to power lived the rest of his life here but mm. this is someone who lived firsthand through it and um you know was in the private sector
0: mm-hmm.
1: to me it's like you're looking at like he had a message for us this is, I want to read another passage. So he has a um, another short book called an inflation primer. You know, it's interesting, this, this book about the gold standard, it's not personal. It's not, I mean, it's not, you don't get a sense of like who he is. And I thought, what's his deal? Like, why does, why is he motivated to tell this story? You read the opening passage to an inflation primer I'm going to read it now. It's just one paragraph. In the summer of 1923, the German inflation was rapidly heading toward the grand finale, a total repudiation of the currency. As an instructor in a Berlin college, this writer drew a monthly salary that had been raised from an inflated 10,000 marks or so in early 1922 to 10 million marks by July 1923. And the whole amount was being paid twice a month then once a week, then once each day. (laughs) The next step to meeting the skyrocketing living costs was to pay us twice a day, in the morning and in the afternoon. Just after 5 p.m., one day in late August 1923, I was walking down the staircase of the school carrying the day's second haul of 10 million marks. The day's first paid for lunch. When the professor of physics overtook me, Are you taking the streetcar? He asked. Yes. I said, let's hurry. The fare will be raised by 6 PM and we may not be able to pay it. So that's his personal frame of reference for this book. You're seeing the framework of his, like the, he wrote this book before he died in like the late sixties. So it's, it's everything he learned over the course of his whole life plus his own personal experience that like still that must have still formed him. And why did he write this in 68 and 70? What was happening then? What message was he trying to tell us? I think that the inflation that was gathering force in the United States which Ronald Marx dates back to the the Kennedy administration that he saw that and and in, in the inflation primer he actually dates the inflation back to be, earlier to before Kennedy the late 50s but i think he saw those forces gathering in the united states even though we had a different system and he was trying to send us a message
0: it's fascinating it, to hear that personal story you know of the inflation you know again the whole point of the economy is that we're doing more with less or we we are further economizing our efforts through trade and innovation right this is this is the whole point right we're just trying to work smarter you know the old adage many hands make light work well it turns out many minds make even lighter work but inflation runs counter to that whole process it's like now this guy goes from getting paid once a month to twice a month to once a week to every day to twice a day. Just think about how that diseconomizes your life, right? Like if you, if I just get paid once a month and maybe I just pay my bills once a month, great. That's, the, that's something I do. I handle the whole thing in an hour or a few hours per month. But when the money is depreciating so rapidly that you are now forced to settle your affairs up to the point of twice a day, right? Where, as you said, at the end of that um, anecdote, he's running to pay the tram, right? Before the fare goes up. It's crazy, right? It's, 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 it's fucking crazy. (laughs) Yeah, it is fucking crazy. Who, I mean, a framing I've been using recently is that we, this has like been the, Recurrent self deception of humanity is that we could just print money to solve our problems. Um, and it is just this short run deception, right? right? If you are in a monopolist position and you just think one order deep, like what's the problem? We don't have enough money. Okay, well, we can print money. Okay, great. That sounds like it'll solve it. It's the seen and the unseen, right? We have this seen immediate solution. But we're abdicating responsibility for the second order unseen consequences, or we could say yet to be seen consequences. And and that can gets continually kicked down the road until he's in this hyperinflationary situation. There's this totalizing diseconomization, a breakdown in trust, a breakdown in social cohesion. And the whole thing comes unraveled. right? So inflation is this a very self-deceptive and ultimately self-destructive force on humanity.
1: Let's define inflation. Cause I, I, you know, it's in the news. We all think about it. We all talk about it just for this conversation. I would like to define inflation as the government adds to the money supply to pay its expenses. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't see inflation with any sense of judgment. It is inevitable. If humans have the power to create money, they'll do it. There's no way around it. And if I were in their position, I probably would have done the same thing. If humans have the discretion, I I here's my here's my my analogy for this. I I think of inflation as um Imagine this like magic syringe and there are rules to the syringe. The syringe has medicine in it and it'll bring anyone back to life. But if you bring them back to life, there's a 5% chance they'll come back to life and kill everybody. So now you're in a diner and, oh, and the other rule about the syringe, here's another rule. If you have the syringe, there's only one. And if you have it, everyone in the world knows that you have it. Mm. So you're in a diner and um, everyone's favorite waiter drops dead. It's the waiter's been there for 20 years. Everyone knows him by name. All the the customers, they've been eating there there for, you know, 10, 20 years. And this waiter just drops dead. And you're there and everyone's like, breed Love's happens to be here. And cause we all know who has the syringe, he's got it. And like breed love, you can bring him back to life. And you're like, I'll do it. But just so you know, there is a 5% <laughs> chance that if I bring him back, he'll kill all of us. And they're like, take the risk. He, we love this person. And what are you going to say to them? What are you going to say in that scenario? No, I, I, so you bring him back to life and he's like, you dust, he dusts himself off and he, everyone is confirmed that using the syringe works. But then he drops dead again. And then the second time, every time you use the syringe, the odds of them killing everybody doubles. Mm-hmm. So now he drops dead again, or someone else drops dead. And like, Breed Love, use the syringe. We love this person. It's, I don't know, whoever you happen to love. You're you're at a concert and uh Bjork, Bjork is coming back. <laughs> so it's a reunion. It's a sugar cubes reunion. And you're backstage, and everyone's like, no, we want to hear classic sugar cubes. Bjork just died. Breed love, use the syringe. <laughs> And you're like, okay, but I used it on this waiter. And if I use it on Bjork, then there's a 10% chance that when she comes back, she's going to kill all of us. And they're like, it's Bjork. She's got to go on. You see, bring her back to life. That's to me, the central bank's dilemma. Everyone's like, use the use the tool because we're going to die if you don't. And the people who, are, who, who become in charge of the central bank are self-selected to be people who in their career path are predisposed to use the syringe. So there isn't even a contrarian among them because they don't seek that career out.
0: It's it's a great, great analogy actually. And then when you bring the guy or girl back and they do go on a killing spree, right? Right. Then you you're faced with this worse decision of like, okay, now 50 people are dead. Do I use the syringe on them? And then so you're you're there's this, this combinatorial explosion, I guess. I don't know if that's the right term, but you get this explosion of more people dead, more propensity to use the syringe, which further increases the odds of more people coming back to kill more people. So you get this exponential blossoming. Yeah of death, right? In, in this analogy. And, you know, I talked, this is funny. I love this analogy because I spoke with John Bervakey, who's a cognitive psychologist in a long form series. And he wrote, he's a very interesting guy. He's a a university of Toronto peer of Jordan Peterson's. Uh, He's on Peterson's level. in, in my opinion, as far as being one of the greatest living modern philosophers. And he wrote a book on modern zombie mythology. (laughs) And I don't know, you know, he is less educated in the sphere of economics. So we had a really interesting conversation comparing notes, but in this book, they show the use of the term zombie charted over time. And it absolutely explodes post-1971. And it's another one of those you know, WTF happened 1971.com charts. And that what you're describing here is the syringe, right? It's basically bringing back the zombie, effectively, the person that just kills everyone, eats everyone's brain, yeah. or whatever. I don't think it's a coincidence you know, that this mythology has emerged in tandem interesting. with the corruption of money, that it is actually, we, we're, we're trying to sustain economic vitality or longevity through a lie, through the lie of fiat, right? And this is, we know this, like if there's a real economic problem to solve in the world, if people are hungry, right? You can't just print money to solve that problem. Someone still has to provide those meals, right? It's not enough to just create new paper or new entries on a database. You have to go and work. Someone has to go and work and prepare the meals to feed the people that are hungry. So it's like we've been trying to apply this deceptive syringe as you might call it to solve real problems but it creates yeah, this negative feedback loop that just makes it harder and harder to solve those very
1: problems. I think actually that's kind of one of the one of the weaknesses of the analogy is that it also the life force that it gives to the person is taken from everyone else. Right. But, You know that that there is um everyone else actually has to pay for the 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 people that you bring back to life, and there's a a total loss of life force that equals the one person you brought back to life. But the more people you bring back to life, the more life force you're sucking from everybody else. And as as more people are brought back to life, and there's several killing sprees, suddenly you're taking in a greater share. You're your debt to life force ratio starts to increase. Yeah.
0: yeah. It's even. almost like you're embedding the economy with hidden risk, right? It's like you may not, the risk may not be realized on that first revival. You brought the guy back with a syringe, but it's there, right? You've, that was one shot. You took a, you had it took a 5% gamble effectively that he was going to kill everyone in the room. The next time someone dies, right? You've, You've now taken two shots at five percent, so you've increased the probability of, of death, uh, you know, mass murder, I guess, effectively. So the, and that's sort of what inflation's doing. It's injecting the economy with hidden risk that may not be immediately evident, but inevitably and ultimately are realized.
1: And the, the first time that the world discovered this power was not a single bailout. It was actually the greatest cataclysm the world had ever seen. It was World War One brought out the first time where government operations around the world were financed on a large scale by suspension of convertibility and they took control of the central banks and financed it with debt. And it was like, there was this, ma- I'm getting ahead. This is the narrative of the book, but financing one of like the biggest emergencies ever was the first time they used the syringe and they came out of World War One like, I didn't know we had this power. I didn't know we could do this. And so it wasn't like the first time they used it was a small emergency. It was the greatest emergency. Mm-hmm. So... It, it's, it instantly embedded the world with a ton of hidden risk. It was the dawn of like the fiat system as we know it today. People always like nowadays, people say, when does it, when did the fiat system really start? Or people say, mm-hmm. Oh, you know, we went off golden 71. I'm like, no, we, the, the system that we have today started in 1914. Yeah. That's, that's when it began. Yeah. um." Just to go back, just to bring us back to Pali and back to the book, I was um, talking with my wife about like inflating away the debt. You know, there's only there's only four ways for our government to infl- to, to to deal with our debt. The, the trap that we're in right now. There's only four possible ways out of it. One is real growth, and 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 the way that real growth would work is that. It doesn't mean that the government won't have to print money for their expenses. It just means that the number of saleable values in the economy will increase faster than the money they have to print. Mm-hmm. And so the new number of saleable values will actually soak up the printed money or maybe exceed the printed money and disguise the inflation. And then they can inflate away the debt. Okay, so maybe, maybe growth, real natural growth actually producing more stuff that makes us wealthier in real terms. That's one way out. The, the other way is austerity where they just like reduce spending. That's a possible way out. Mm-hmm. That's not going to happen. This is not going to happen. The, the, the die has been cast. There's no government now that will just be like, yep, we're going to cut costs. We're going to say, we're going to cut social security. We're going to cut Medicare. We're going mm-hmm. to, that's not. So then the, the third way is um, explicit default. We're not going to pay our, our 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 debts. We come weirdly close to it with the debt ceiling debate, but that's never going to happen. The government's mm-hmm. not going to just be like, nope, we're not paying. So the fourth and only other way out is soft default. Mm-hmm. And if I were in government, I would do that too. Of course. It's actually totally the most invisible, painless way to do it. And we are, when I, I was trying to describe like, so I'll get back to this conversation with, my lady, I was like, you know, like if our if our public debt right now is 28 trillion, you know, when everyone's yearly salary is a trillion dollars, then paying off 28 trillion in government debt isn't gonna be a, a big deal. She was like, wait, you just lost me. Like, no one's salary is gonna be a trillion dollars a year. And I'm like, I know it seems crazy, but let me just let me just give you this sequence of numbers. Bear with me. 1913. Okay, when Germany, Germany's total debt for like all the territories and the Reich is like 29.5 billion marks, which is about 7 billion U.S. dollars equivalent at the time. 1913, total German debt, 29.5 billion marks worth about 7 billion. In 23, after the hyperinflation, when they revalued the currency... They revalued it from the mark to a new a new currency called the Renton mark, and the rate of revaluation was one trillion marks was one Renton mark, one new mark. So, just using your math, moving the decimal places, the total pre-war debt was point zero two five Renton marks. So. In 1923, $1 was equal to 4.47 rent in marks. So the entire debt of a country from 1913, which was 29.5 billion marks, actually had a value in 1923. It was 0.0065 cents in nominal terms. So, like, that's not that, that's real. That's a real equation from history. And so for me, understanding that it's not actually very difficult to imagine like, yeah, so when my yearly salary is a trillion dollars and the average house is seven trillion dollars and a loaf of bread costs 1.5 million, you know, those will just be the amounts. Mm-hmm. Ken, yeah, as Inflations build on themselves exponentially. And to me, that is the path that we're on. We are in the middle to late stages of an exponential inflation from which there's no way out other than soft default. That's why Bitcoin.
0: Excellent, Lee said. Um, and it's, we do have this immediacy bias Right where we think, oh, $1.5 million loaf of bread, what are you talking about? That's impossible. It could never happen. But just like I would encourage anyone that thinks that to just press pause, rewind a few minutes and work their way through uh, the description you just gave, because these things have happened historically. Not only have they happened, They've really been the ultimate fate of every fiat currency experiment ever, ever run. Basically, right? It's either hyperinflation or the country gets gets wiped out through warfare.
1: Um, so let's once let's, you let's, begin an inflation. Once you begin an inflation, you have no choice but continue it because the beginning of an inflation, just like with the syringe, it feels great. So let's say you you don't have very much growth. Mm-hmm. So you're you're a, you're a government, and you're like, okay, so we want. Some inflation, so we're going to inflate by a. We're going to add four percent of the to the money supply, and it actually works. People feel great. So then you, then yeah, you have one hundred and four percent of the money supply, but it's based on the change in the money supply. So if you don't do it again, then the money eventually levels out, mm-hmm. and the the growth is over. So the year after that, you actually to a, you have to grow to a hundred and four percent of a hundred and four percent. Exactly. And the year after that, you have to do 104% of that amount. And now you are walking down the path of an exponential inflation and there's no way out of it, but for the inflationary forces... For inflationary forces can get stored up and there's a lot of, a lot of these like reservoirs of inflation. Mm-hmm. The entire stock market is a reservoir for inflation. The bond market is a reservoir for inflation. Mm-hmm. Central bank balance sheets are a reservoir for inflation. So they can store up this inflationary potential for decades. But eventually that inflation does leak into prices. Mm-hmm. And that's when the people realize it. And the switch from um, a non-inflationary environment to inflationary environment is actually totally psychological. Yes, it's not. There's no one event. It's not even really economical. It's it's like it's a psychological thing, because if people had infinite reservation demand, a.k.a. cash balances, if people yep. only wanted cash and wanted to keep cash and were content to keep cash forever, then the government could print forever. Yeah. But when that psychological switch gets flipped and suddenly reservation demand goes down and that spending those out into the economy, that's when all the inflationary potential that's been stored up for years and decades leaks into the prices of real values. Because as we said in the beginning, the wealth of the economy has nothing to do with its money wealth. It's its real wealth. So when the money starts seeping it, there's only three places money can go ever. Cash balances, assets, real goods and services. It's in one of those three places. And when new money gets created, the first place it goes, even if it's for an hour, it goes to a cash balance, then it goes to assets and it may stay there for 30 years, but eventually it goes into the third place, which is real goods and services. And once it starts to go there in size, that's when you feel the inflationary potential that's been stored up. And the longer it's stored up, the worse it is when the dam breaks.